Well, good morning once again. I'm excited to come and sit before the Word together this Christmas morning. But you, but Christmas, this time between Christmas and New Year's has always kind of felt like no man's land for me. I kind of feel like I'm still waddling around from all the food we ate. I mean, I've, that's where probably Lindsay and I's greatest Christmas tradition is we just keep eating and eating and eating. Uh, or maybe you, like me, are regretting some of the toys that you purchased for your kids. I, I really wish that they put like a sticker that said how many decibels they put out after the batteries were in them before you bought it. Um, or maybe like, like me, I'm still trying to like use the IV drip of coffee to at least stay awake and make up for some of the lost sleep that I've experienced over this past week or two. But I think as we enter into this time, it's often a time of weariness. A time with as the Christmas bells fade away, we're left asking, what are we looking forward to? What are we looking to and what are we left with? It's into this posture that we come this morning to a familiar story. One full of exhaustion, disappointment, and yet hope. My hope this morning as we look at the story of the visit of the Magi, that we might join them falling down in worship before the king, looking to the joy that shines even in the midst of our deep weariness. Let's look now to the word together, looking to Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen went, when, seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the things I love about having Mondays off is that every Monday afternoon, I get to go and pick up Wit, our youngest, our four-year-old, from his preschool right across the street. And it's super fun because it's just one-on-one time, no brothers or sisters trying to vie for my attention. And I always ask him every time, Wit, how was your day today? Did you have a good day at school? And a couple days ago, or weeks ago, I asked that familiar question. And he goes, it was not a good day, Daddy. And I said, oh, no, what's the matter? He goes, I got in trouble. And I was just like, oh, okay. And it's like probably got a sharply worded email waiting for me from Miss Becca. Uh, but I was like, okay, you know, that's fine. What, what happened, son? And he goes, well, we're learning a song. I said, okay, and again, my sixth brain's like, what songs have they been listening to on Alexa that now all of his classmates know, right? And I'm just like, oh, okay, tell me about it, bud. What song goes, "Uh, you know, Joy to the World, and I said, all right. He said, we're verse two. 
And I was like, okay, what's, what's the matter? Why, why'd you get in trouble singing Joy to the World? He said, Daddy, I just don't like singing in the mouse voice. Again, I'm just like, what? And he goes, Daddy, Miss Becca said that parts of the song, we have to sing really quiet like a mouse, but I really just want to sing loud like the lion. And after I sat there and just like soaked up that cuteness and was like, you know, encouraging a little civil disobedience, like let's sing like a lion, buddy. You know, that, that sentence kept like haunting me. It's been rolling around in my head and my heart because I find it really convicting. Because I started to ask myself the question, when's the last time I sang like a lion? When's the last time I've come to worship with every fiber of my being? How often when I enter this room on Sunday mornings, is it more filled with work and duty than worship and delight? It's with this question and that posture before us that the text invites us into the story. It invites us to ask, what is it that's robbing me of hope, of wonder, of worship? Matthew invites us into this well-worn story just to come again and gaze upon the beauty of Christ, to gaze upon our Savior. This morning, I'm going to argue that our text invites us to see a couple things. I think it invites us to see, as we look upon the brilliance of Christ, how he burns away our prideful surety. Whether we locate that in our religious rightness and knowing how to honor the Lord through our morality, or through our cynical atheism, doing it our own way, how the gospel comes and challenges us, asking, what is it you're worshiping? Where are you worshiping yourself, perhaps? And then we're going to turn and look and see how the brilliance of Christ lifts our eyes to worship. How it invites us to gaze upon the stunning beauty of Christ's gospel and hear the whispered invitation to come and worship just as you are. Seeing how the gospel comforts us by drawing near to us with love and mercy and patience. Again, the two things we're going to look at is as we look at the brilliance of Christ to see how it burns away our surety and lifts our eyes to worship. Let's look at how it burns away our surety first. One of the things I love about diving into narratives, particularly in the biblical text, is I'm always trying to figure out what character would I be in this text? Where would I be within this story? And one of my more blunt seminary professors was like, listen, never think that you're the hero of the biblical story. So, oh, you're reading the story of David and Goliath? Great, you think you're down there in the plains where you actually are is hiding in the baggage. Oh, you're reading the story of Esther? You think you're the one who's going to bravely stand against the king? You're actually one of the consorts who has given themselves over to idolatry and its fullness. And even though I know that, when I come to this story, I almost can't help myself. Just like, all right, but which magi am I? Right? Like, so frankincense seems kind of weird, gold, you know, anybody, but myrrh. What if I was the magi of myrrh? How sweet would that be? Right? And I'm just like, that's where I am in the story. But as we read this story and we actually ponder it, where I see my heart most fully is in all the characters who watch the magi walk by, sitting in their own surety and not chasing after the Messiah. Right? What this story exposes to us is our own arrogance. Let's look first and see those who come with their own religious surety, the ways in which the people of God at the time show their own arrogance as they preen as the religious right of the day. We see in our story after the Magi come to Herod and say, listen, we're here to worship the king of the Jews. 
And imagine how that would be for Herod, right? Like, I'm King Herod of the Jews, right? Like, and so he's like, you know, he's troubled. All Jerusalem's greatly troubled. And who does he turn to in that fear? In verse 4, he says, listen, let's get together the scribes and the chief priests. Because they'll be able to tell me if this is a legitimate threat or not. They'll be able to tell me if there's anything to this prophecy at all that I need to handle. And I love their response in verse 5. It's like, yeah, Dubro, have you ever read the book of Micah? Like, we know where the Savior is going to be born. It's going to be in Bethlehem. We've had this for forever, man. And what's so crazy is thinking about, like, why, didn't, why isn't verse 7, and Herod took the army and destroyed Bethlehem? Like, why isn't that the case? I think it's because of how they responded to Herod. That what the chief priests and scribes show here is they don't believe there's any potency in this prophecy. That the promises of God are locked way in the past with our forefathers or looking forward in the future. They're not for me in my time, with my struggles, with my longing. God has no bearing here. We see the religious people of the day not searching for the Messiah because they're so sure they have all the answers. They're so sure that they know how it'll happen, who God will use. One of the things we miss as modern readers is just how out of place the Magi were. Not just in, like we can recognize from our Hallmark pictures in our head of the reality that like they come from a distant land, they've got different clothes on, they've got their, you know, camels full of gifts, all the rest, like they're going to stand out in the crowd. But we miss how they stand out across all the pages of Scripture. Every other time, magi of this nature, this word is used across Scripture, it's used negatively. Every other time but this one. Because who were the Magi? The Magi were the idolaters who worshipped the stars. They were the pagans who did not worship the holy God of Israel. They were the ones who were worshipping the creation instead of the creator. It's shocking. And so the chief priests and scribes are talking to Herod and they're like, listen. First off, God's sleeping on us. If you want to do something, you just go do it. We'll make our own way. We don't really need him. We just kind of give him lip service. But even if the Lord was bringing his Messiah, he wouldn't use these people to tell us about it. He wouldn't use them to herald the Messiah. And brothers and sisters, how often do we do that very thing? How often do we say, listen, the promises of God are good for David and for Moses and for Paul even, but God doesn't have much clout here in the 21st century. I'm going to make my own way. I'm much more powerful than God. How often do we say, listen, I know the gospel's for everybody, but if you come to church, you better dress up. If you come to church, your kids better be silent. If you come to church, you better look like a good person, someone nice. How often do we say, listen, I know the Lord made us ministers of reconciliation, but racism is really like a political problem that the media just manipulates us with. God wouldn't want me to lean in and actually do anything. I'm just going to continue on in my own way because I know what's best. How often do we, like the chief priests and the scribes say, I'm the religious expert. I know what God would want. I've got it all figured out. But perhaps you're not as brazen as that. Perhaps you and your season, which we can probably all lean into in a certain sense right now, have been not the one shouting on the street corner, but rather one who just feels ground down to a nub. I was speaking with a college friend a couple, excuse me, a couple weeks ago, 
And he said something that was just so powerful to me. He said, Clay, I'm just so tired of doing the right thing. I've been pouring myself out in prayer, and afterwards, nothing feels different. It tastes like ashes in my mouth. The pain and weariness is still here. Why hasn't God taken this away? I loved his honesty. I loved his honesty there, because sometimes it's not anything other than we feel ground down. Sometimes we don't worship because we're so disappointed, because we've been disillusioned to what we think Christianity could be. I want to be very clear. Feeling defeated is not sinful. But as we move into this posture of feeling so broken down, we have to be careful of watching where our mind and our hearts go to, to remember what it is we are believing. So often when we find ourselves in that place, what are we saying? Saying, listen, I know what's best for my life. Listen, if God was good, he'd give me what I want. Listen, I'm the one who can affect change in my life. I can control my own destiny. Listen, right now is all that really matters. You know, whatever he's done in the past for me, like, it, it's really not helpful because he's not helping me right now. I'm the one who's the only one who can be trusted. Look and see how quickly we move into making ourselves the deity. We see this in our text very clearly in the character of Herod, do we not? We see in verse 8, after he sins, or when he's sending the, the wise men off, he's just like, all right, you guys go and figure out if this is a legitimate threat, and then come back and I will uh, worship him too. Right? Like, Herod's not even barely veiling this, right? He knows that he is going to be the one who goes and protects his kingdom against this usurper who was born, if it's a real threat. How often do we, like Herod, say, listen, I'm not moved to worship because I believe that gospel is way too small, that my kingdom is much more compelling than Jesus. And as we mill around in this darkness, clinging to our surety, our disappointment, our, our own arrogance, right? God moves in our midst with the very light of the world. He's going to use that which is foolish to shame the wise. He's going to echo his response to Habakkuk when he says, listen, I'm doing something in your time that you wouldn't believe if I told you. I'm doing it through this baby. You think you have the faith all perfectly figured out? I'm going to use idolaters to point to the Messiah. And not just that, I'm going to use their idol to do it. And I'm going to use their idol to shine upon the piece of scripture that you have had and neglected and treated like comic book fantasy. You, want, you think you know exactly what's going to come? You think you know exactly how to do the faith? Guess what? You think you're powerful? I'm going to send the Godhead itself in your midst, wrapped in flesh, in a manger. The gospel comes and challenges us saying, do you think that your surety is going to protect you? How far have you gotten in that surety. Have the drinks pushed back the depression yet? Has the pornography filled that hole of intimacy you're longing for in your heart? Have your Facebook rants made you feel like you're an agent of change yet? Have your Instagram likes made you feel beautiful yet? Has your perfect morality in faith made you feel good enough yet? The brilliance of Christ comes and shines the light on the lies our idols tell us, the crumbling foundation that we so often build upon. 
But the light of this star not only moves to expose, it also moves to illuminate the path forward. The gospel not only moves in a challenge, but also to comfort and to draw near. We look now to see how this star illuminates the footprints of the Magi and invites us to follow them in worship. Let's move now and look to see how the brilliance of Christ lifts our eyes to worship. As I mentioned earlier, Lindsay and I love to eat, and one of the things that we love to eat is Chinese food. And if I'm the one ordering Chinese food, it's a very simple order. Like, listen, I'd like your biggest thing of General Tao's chicken, and you can hold the veggies, and you can keep the, the miso, and just, like, back up that dump truck of fried rice and just put it all over the plate. Like, that's what we're about to smash some food and eat that. And usually, actually almost every time, I'll take one honorary bite out of the egg roll. Just feels like the right thing to do. And I always am just like, nope, not worth it. Back to the fried rice. And a couple days ago, a friend of mine made a homemade egg roll for me. And brothers and sisters, my eyes have been opened. It was so incredibly good. I looked at, I looked at him, I was like, who knew? Like, like, really? Like, this is so good. And that's like part of the reality of it. It's just like, I just didn't believe that it could really like reach these heights of just delight and deliciousness. I think that's often the reality of how when we come to worship, we expect so little. And I think Matthew in this text very humbly and gently invites us to look in and see how good it is, how beautiful worship can be. And if I'm being honest, Sunday mornings are littered with pitfalls for me. So often what robs me of worship is that I'm second-guessing myself the whole time. I'm thinking to myself, did I come up too early? Did I miss Ben's cue? Now I'm just awkwardly standing over there waiting. Like, this is terrible. Or I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I mispronounced that word. I knew, just read, Clay. We learned how to do this at a very young age. We can do this, right? Like, we can do it. Um, how often am I thinking, I'm not pausing enough. I'm speaking too fast. Are they going to like my sermon? How often are Sunday mornings draped in, how am I doing? Instead of the worship of the Lord. How often am I scared of messing up instead of coming before God himself? Here in Collegiate, one of the things that produces the most anxiety for me is moving this pulpit. <laughs> and dear friends, it looks simple, but it is not. Uh, you have to deal with the, the cords and stuff, but the, the worst part is if you have to push it forward because the wheels are a little bit back and it leans, as you can see. And every time I have to move this thing, I'm like, I'm about to push it off the stage. Like, this is going to be truly catastrophic. Like, in every time I think about this, and how much are my, is my heart getting in the way of worship? How often am I the one blocking myself from worship? Did you hear what was missing in how I described my experience of Sunday mornings? I'm not stunned by his grace. I'm not crying out in my pain, in my shame. I'm not longing for the words of grace. I'm not longing to be filled by the word at all. I'm not longing for the benediction. I'm hoping I don't mess up. How often are we the stumbling blocks before us to come before the Holy One? I love the book, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's this fictionalized account of this demon trying to tempt someone. And he writes back and forth with his demon uncle trying to figure out how to do it best. And in the book, one of the most stunning parts to me 
is he's writing back and forth to his uncle, and his uncle says, listen, if they get to church, you haven't failed yet. Just make them think about that person sitting beside them who has the squeaky shoe instead of listening to the sermon. Just make them think about that person singing just two notes off, two rows up. Just make them think about what they want for lunch or perhaps for us, like the many things around you at your house as you're watching online. How quickly do we insert ourselves in the place of glory, our own preferences? What if instead we came like the Magi with one purpose? From the beginning of our story, they have been singular in their focus. They're following the star. Why? So that they might worship the king of the Jews. What if worship was not about my preferences, but God's majesty? What if I came with all of me instead of just the table scraps of thoughts I have left over? How different would worship look then? Now, I'm not advocating for some like vapid emotionalism, right? But what if we sang with our whole hearts instead of like we're reading a phone book? What if we confessed with tears instead of looking for grammatical errors? What if we longed for the word instead of treating it like homework? What if we basked in the benediction because we need the blessing of God? What if we came to the sacrament like a man dying of thirst in the desert? What if we came to the Lord with all of us? What could lead us to that? Guilt and shame are really poor excuses, and they're not able to hold up against our own weariness. The only thing that's going to move us to worship is looking at the beauty of Christ, of seeing that our hearts can move because he has made these broken hearts of stone into living hearts of flesh, that we can bring all of ourselves to him because he filled the manger with his cries, that we can come and hope for a king because he's sitting on his throne. That's how we can come to worship. But why do we do it? Why? Why should our hearts be moved to that? It's because in Christ, we can never be separated from the love of God. Because we can be, never be too far gone from his grace. You who lied about that thing so that you could get the promotion. You who had the abortion. You who have just betrayed your friends. You whose kids hate you. You who have rebelled in every way possible, you who don't feel like you're able to be loved or worthy of it, to you, God says, you are my beloved child. I love you enough to take my son from heaven and put him in your midst, to crush him for your sake, because I want to wrap you in my love for all eternity. And it's that kind of love that can handle our backsliding. It can handle our sputtering faith, our failures and our shame, because Christ bore that shame for us. That on that tree, he went outside the camp, taking on all of our ugliness, all of our pain, all of our shame. And through that empty tomb, as he walks forth in shining glory, he's coming to wrap us in the cloak of his righteousness. To say, you are my beloved, and I give you the family name. You will be a co-heir with me for all eternity, for love's sake, for grace. That's the beauty of our gospel. That's something worth hoping in. That's a Savior worth worshiping. One of the things I love about this story 
is the progression of the Magi as they enter Bethlehem, right? In verse 10, we see that they finally see this star stops. Think about how long they've been waiting for that star to stop somewhere, right? I mean, they, this is the thing they know, right? And so what does it say in verse 10? It's this hilarious verse. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Like, like he's going over and over himself to try and show redundantly, emphatically, they were pumped, right? Like, yes, we know this star. We've been riding that stinky camel for this long. We are finally here. Like, imagine that joy. It's a deep, beautiful joy. But that's not the climax of the story. The climax of the story is when the door creaks open in verse 11, and they see the king. And what do they do? They fall down and they worship. They're not here to worship the star. These broken, sinful men are here to worship the king. What I love is there's no pretension in this worship. They don't come with a resume. They don't come with perfect theology. They had one star and one verse of scripture. And they come and pour themselves out before the king of kings and Lord of Lords. This story invites us to come before the King and worship just as we are. My favorite part of the Christmas Eve service a couple days ago was when I knew it was coming, but he didn't. Um, we started to sing Joy to the World. And Wit's sitting two seats over from me, and he starts to bounce, right? And he's like, Daddy, Daddy, it's my song. And he looked at me and goes, Verse two, verse two. And we waited. And right before the band entered into verse 2, I leaned down to him and I said, Wit, sing like a lion, my son. That's the hope of the people of God. That we have this beautiful gospel that we get to sing about. Let us be a people filled with hope, filled with wonder, and filled with worship as we sit at the feet of our King. Let us pray. God, we're thankful for the ways in which your hope is what draws us in. That we are unable, dead in our sins and trespasses, and yet, by your love, you draw us to yourself. In this baby, in the manger, we see the King of kings. And Lord, that fills us with hope, even in the midst of our present darkness. Even as we feel defeated and ground down, even as we come with all of our pride, you come and love us. You come and cover us in grace. Lord, we come as a humble people, thankful for the incredible gospel that you have given to us in Christ. Pray all this in his holy name. Amen.